Hello. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Very Funny Podcast, a show dedicated to you and me uniting on a weekly basis. Although, for the past few weeks, I have been gone. I was forced to leave, to explore myself, explore my meaning in life. For you see, recently I came upon a great fortune. I inherited the wealth of my ancestors. Left to me in a will and testament, I found myself a millionaire overnight. And I remembered back in 1893, when we had many colonies, and we had them subjugated under our thumb, like the peasants that they were. But due to our ignorance, keeping them impoverished and uninformed led to massive breeding amongst the colonies. Soon we found ourselves outnumbered for protection against sexually transmitted diseases such as babies. <sighs> Was considered sin by the same book that we had used to control them, it would be our undoing. However, now, decades later, I find myself at a crossroads. Do I spend the money that... Okay, no, I didn't get any money at all, whatsoever. I wish. That would have been amazing. Sorry for the delay. Um, we're back, and we're going to be on a regular schedule. That's for real. I uh, took some time work on my health. Uh, there's nothing wrong with me. I was just really fat and tired of it. So I thought to myself, you know what? I really want to get to the gym, get into a routine where I wake up at like four in the morning. And for the most part, I finally achieved it. It took some time, hit the gym in the morning, work during the day. There's a lot of things going on and a lot of progress. And I'm going to be sharing all of it with you probably in the next episode, some very exciting announcements. But, um, I just wanted to apologize for, I think it's been three weeks since the last episode. We're going to be on a weekly basis, guaranteed from now. Uh, in fact, I might be releasing more than one episode a week, but we'll definitely have the one episode guaranteed. So my apologies to you all. It was to work on my health and my fitness. Um, what was that song for Fergie? Working on my fitness. Was that was Fergie. <laughs> Delicious. Yeah. So, um, we're back. It's the very funny podcast. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed. I am working on my fitness. I'm trying to lose weight. Uh, I, uh, if you can use already, if you look closely, <laughs> my hair, I just showered. Um, I, they're not sponsoring. Road, if you'd ever like to sponsor, I use your microphone. Anywho, I'm trying to get into the best shape of my life. I have a goal uh, in a few months. I want to reveal my body. I just... Um, for now, I'll reveal this. Okay, so um, stupidity aside, I've missed you guys, and I'm I'm in a good mood because I'm going to be with you for the next, for the foreseeable future. We got a great show today coming along at the very fun podcast. Also. Um, I'm very excited.
because a lot of people have asked me, they said, Nimmer, uh, where can we watch your comedy specials? No Bombing in Beirut is on Showtime. Obviously, a lot of people around the world don't have Showtime. And they said, Nimmer, feel like a rock star. Hey! And they said, Nimmer, where can we see your special, your comedy shows? If we can't watch them live. First of all, I got live shows coming up. Let's talk about that. Uh, We got next week, I'm going to be in Tempe, Arizona. Phoenix, Tempe, they're right next to each other. So if you got family there, let them know. I'm at the Tempe Improv on April 12 and 13. Yes. Um, And then the week or two weeks after that, something like that, April 24, I'm going to be at the Irvine Improv. I love that venue. I'm very excited. And this is my new show. It's called The Future Is Now. And I'm going to be I'm going to be uh, doing the show for the first time as a complete show. Um, And I'm very excited to share it with everybody. I've actually tested this on audiences that don't know me here in America. I was recently in um, goodness. Where was it? Nimmer, where were you? Where was the last show you were in? It was just a couple of weeks ago. You can do this, Nimmer. Potawatomi, because in Milwaukee, in the Potawatomi, shout out to them, it was an incredible time, and uh, I tested out the show, I did two shows there, and dude, it killed, it was amazing, I, I, after Love Isn't the Answer, I was worried, I'm like, can I beat that show, because that's honestly the best show I've ever put together, and I have, I can't wait to share it with you guys, um, Ramadan is coming, so I don't have that many dates, because we're going to stop in May, in fact, May 4, which is one day before Ramadan, thankfully, I didn't know that. It wasn't planned. Coincidentally, the Lord looked out for me. He was like, my Christian child, you have been through so much. I will protect you from the Muslim exodus of ticket sales. So um, we chose May 4th randomly. And uh, and uh, it turns out, I think Ramadan is like on the 5th. Unless the moon shows up early. Then I'm fucked. <laughs> so anywho, um, my mom said she hates it when I say anywho. Sorry, mom. She watches my podcast. Isn't that great? Uh, What was I going to say? Why why was I talking about? Yes. So um, the reason I bring that up is because in Toronto on May 4, that is the last time that I would present love isn't the answer to the world. So uh, that's where it ends. So Tempe, because I haven't done it in Toronto, I'm going to be doing love isn't the answer in Toronto. I don't want to skip it. It's still part of the tour. The tour is still somewhat going on. So basically what I'm trying to say is Tempe, Arizona, April 12 and 13. Then we got um, at the Tempe Improv. April 24, the temp, the Irvine Improv. Uh, these are the new shows. The future is now. Uh, then we're going to be doing uh, on May 4, uh, Love Isn't the Answer at in Toronto. Tickets are on sale at NimmerComedy.com. Yes. All right. So... Um, why was I even saying this? I don't know. I'm going. I went on a tangent. We. Uh, uh, what the hell was I trying to say? Why was I bringing these up? Yes, people say, "Where can we watch your shows?" Okay, love isn't the answer. Not in any digital form yet. Okay, that's not available. No bombing Beirut has been a Showtime special. Will be available worldwide for purchase, download, audio listening, the whole thing. I'm going to be announcing all of the links and the date and the stuff very, very soon. Also. You will be so you'll be able to buy No Bombing in Beirut from like iTunes, YouTube, uh, Vimeo, uh, Hulu, Amazon. It's going to be everywhere. Shout out to Nacelle, which is the, uh, the 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 company that basically bought the special and, and is distributing the rights. Then my old shows. Uh, this is why I'm hot. Eye of the Tiger, Victorious Secret, uh, 
victory, victorious, secret, and um, epic. These are all shows that I had filmed and had made more or less available for free online, except for Epic and Victoria's Secret. I had to remove them. A lot of people ask me, Nimmer, why did you remove so much of your content, like uh, APIO and stuff? When I first came to America to do stand-up, people were a bit confused because those shows had a bit of Arabic in them. So people would be like, hey, who's this guy, Nimmer? I want to go check him out. And they'd go and Google me, and then they'd, they'd YouTube a video, and they'd be like, oh, he does it in Arabic, so the show's not for us. So I was missing uh, basically livelihood, sales, and most importantly, the whole reason that I came here was to expand and reach across the border. So... What I ended up doing is I removed all of the videos and just left the ones where it was just in English. And I don't want to put them back because it'll still cause confusion. So I am going to make them available for download on my website. Epic and Victoria's Secret were never available. And this is why I'm hot and I have the tiger were available but cut up. They'll be available in one uh, thing. So it's very exciting times. I'm very excited. I'm going to be selling them, by the way. So it's not free download. So I'm sorry about that. But it's going to be like five bucks. So it's not really that much money um, just to cover the cost of the, all the, the website and the hosting and the cells and and then to, you know, to live, to exist as a human being. Plus, I paid for these and edited and directed them and and then we color graded them when I never really made any money off of them. So it's nice, you know, to put it out there. So I'm excited about that. Uh, as as all people should be about making money off of the thing that they do. I've always had a problem making money off of stand-up because it always feels like a privilege to be able to do this, and I don't feel you should be able to get paid for... But I, I came to terms with it, uh, especially now uh, that it's tax season here in America. <laughs> I'm screwed. Okay, so um, I'm just kidding. That's That's unrelated. But I'm screwed. You know what sucks about tax season? I have to go through the whole previous year. When you work on, this was, even when I was in Lebanon, I'd file my taxes. I don't, I'm not an employee. So my business, I have to file all the taxes for my business. I have to show my expenses and the income and what. Uh, I relive all of the mistakes that I made in the past year. And I'm not one to, I mean, look around me. I'm obviously not splurging and I don't uh, have millions. I wish I did. Usually what I do is I spend all my money on um, crazy stuff, whether it's just producing videos, putting together comedy specials, um, all at a loss, uh, doing big shows just because I'm like, let's fucking do this. Uh, No bombing in Beirut. I filmed the whole thing myself. I paid for it. Uh, did the whole thing. I'll, I'll go into details in an episode one day, but it cost me about $150,000 and I didn't make a fraction of that back. It was pretty much my life savings at the time. But look, if you want to make it, you got to you gotta put your money where your mouth is, right? So it got onto Showtime. It's now available everywhere. So for me, uh, what comes whenever it's tax season, so it hurts when you're spending the money and you know that it's going and you're not going to get it back. And then tax season comes and then you have to go through each and every single thing you spent and itemize it and categorize it. And it's so depressing and painful. And it hurts. April 15 is the deadline and I won't make the deadline. So we'll extend. But I will have to still file my tax. Anyways, I'm not going to talk about taxes. It's boring. Uh, we are talking about how stand-up comedy in the Middle East became a thing that allowed me to save up all that money to spend it on stupid stuff and then get depressed about my tax returns. Thankfully, now everything I've done has paid off and we have a good connection right now and I'm able to do a podcast and people know who the hell I am and they can listen to it and they can get something from it. So we're doing story time 
talking about how stand-up comedy in the Middle East happened. It's kind of my life story because I started stand-up comedy in the Middle East. So when we last, in our last episode, it was my university days at the American University of Beirut. And I went into the finance club and its significance on shaping me and my worldview. And most importantly, as the PR officer in the finance club, how I, uh, it really made me aware of how to sell, you know, tickets or to basically market a show. So I'm going to continue after. I'm not going to go into the details. You know, I'll leave stuff for other episodes. But uh, I graduated uh, finance. And I told that story about playing the guitar on the last day of school and stuff. I graduated in finance um, with a... uh, So it was business with an emphasis on finance and a minor in philosophy. So that I could be philosophical to you. And... um, I always used to joke that I studied business, and if it doesn't work out, the philosophy will help me deal with it. (laughs) Also, isn't it bizarre how people who study psychology are usually the ones who need therapy the most? Anywho, we'll talk about that later. Um, (laughs) One day. Man, my best jokes in AUB. I I was just at an AUB gala. Shout out to them in Boston last week. And they... uh, and I was telling stories about my days in AUB, and I told my first joke, which I said here on the last episode. But there was another joke that I used to always say. So you know what? That's a great way, place to start. I graduate from university, and I want to be a stand-up comic. Obviously, this is my dream ever since I was a kid. And uh, there is no stand-up comedy in the Middle East, but I've got a movement going for my AUB days and stuff like that. But at the same time, I was an insurance broker. So when I was 17, so when I was 12, this is a bit of story about my dad. My father is the greatest man. My mom is the greatest woman. But my father is the greatest man that I know. He's uh he's he's more than a hero to me. He's kind of like a a god. Like he's a person that is so unreachable and un, unattainable that it 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 becomes like uh you know how we how we see um God in a logical sense, right? Like, if I could be half the man that my father was, that would be unreal, you know, that my father is, sorry. Uh, obviously, he's still with us, but basically, I'm because I'm talking about the past. But he was this guy that went through unbelievable hardship and we never felt it. Do you, does that make sense? Like, we went to America and, you know, he was in Saudi. His stories are so crazy. I should do an episode about my dad one day i will i will not mix it in here i'm just gonna leave it with this sentence my father if you want to know more about my dad let me know I'll, i he has stories that are so incredible that they will probably i there's one story in particular that i i might never tell because i i want it to be made into a movie i want to get famous enough that i can make this story into a movie i don't want to get paid i don't care about the money i think this story would make people laugh so much that it could cure certain ailments um but in the meantime let me just say that my dad when if you think that i'm funny my father is uh where i draw a lot of that from he's the master and he's an incredible individual one of those dads that was always sacrificing for the family um same car for 10 12 years uh and when he bought it it was like 30 years old um and falling apart uh, same clothes for that duration as well. Uh, never went out. 
never would go drinking, never went on a vacation. And let me say this is the same thing for my mom, right? So they both did this together. Both my parents were those parents that it's like, okay, you haven't finished your education, you haven't gotten a job, and you haven't become set for life. Therefore, we can't enjoy life. And uh, I think it's very radical to have that approach. But I mean, lucky me and my sister. But my parents, both of them, uh, when I when they when sacrificed, like they sacrificed all of the good times that they could have had. I, I know they had a good time uh, living, and they have a good time seeing everything paid off. But it was difficult, man. Um, you know, you'd have those friends that judge you because oh, you don't have a new car or whatever, and they wouldn't care. My dad was that guy who, when I was young, I I had sideburns. Okay, so this is a good story. In school, I had sideburns that came to here. This was in the 90s. And I had a a bit of a goatee going on and long hair. So my dad comes home and he says, you need to get everything shaved and you got to get a haircut. Because my dad was adamant that you should never um, care what people think. And it's clear that I was doing this stuff because I wanted people to think I looked cool. And he's like, your real personality is in here. It's not here. Um, And this is the greatest advice I ever got. Of course, I was like, absolutely no, I'm not going to shave. My dad forced me to go to a haircut guy. And I got a haircut that was way shorter than this. I had long hair. I would be headbanging, playing metal and stuff. Had to obviously, he made me shave all the way up to here. So no sideburns. Went completely clean shaven. So he was that kind of guy. My father was like very powerful personality. And no shame, always proud, worked hard, uh, never gave up, incredible human being. And um, when I was 12, he we had a sports store in Lebanon called Champ Sport. It's actually, some of you might know it, it's in an area called Jaita, uh, where there's a very famous grotto, Mghara, Mghara Jaita, up there, um, is a one of, I think, should be one of the wonders of the world. It's an absolutely breathtaking thing where there's these um dude what are they called the things that hang from the ceiling uh crystallized whatever and uh, i'll put it in the description below and my father uh had this store on the road up there called champ sport and it was like a passion of his he had this sports store and there was a girl there that worked uh that was her name was antoinette and her sister worked there too i can't remember her name when i was 12 my dad uh, used to be a firm believer that the best way to raise a man was to um, uh, give give them give give him hardship. So my dad purposely tried to make everything difficult. I was he was incredibly strict with me. Uh, he would not let me do anything fun. He would uh, never let me go out with my friends. He would never let me go to like birthday parties. It was oppressive. And I would find out later that he would tell my grandparents when they'd protest that he's being too harsh. He'd be like, you send your children off to the military where they spit on them, they throw them in the mud, and they step on them, and you say that's good because it makes them men. But when I do it out of love, you guys judge me. It's a very, very intense human being, my father. Um, And so summer would come, and summer was an opportunity for me to go have fun, but... He said, no, in summer, you're going to go work in the store Uh, six days a week, Monday to Saturday, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. You can't stay out after seven. You can't go out on Sunday. It's family day. So 
basically my uh, summer would be completely taken away. I'd be in that store working and my father and my friends would come visit me there, if anything. But what he did do as well, so you guys don't think my dad's a crazy, insane person, is he was more concerned not with me having fun, but with me getting the skills to become an incredible individual that would learn how to uh, live. So he wanted, he was more concerned with giving me life instead of giving me fun. Because he figured if I had the ability to live, then I could have fun for the rest of my life. And my dad um, would tell me, okay, now that you're in the store, you know, and by that time I knew how to use Microsoft Excel and Word because my father also, when I was younger, would give me these Word documents and Excel documents and tell me to figure out and make him replicate them on the computer myself. Crazy stuff. Skills that I've used my entire life. And I just dive into this program. There was no internet. There was modems and Lebanon. The, the internet was terrible. So I just have to click around and figure out what the stuff in the menu would do and reverse engineer a lot of the documents. And um, I taught him how to use undo once because he called me and he's like, he was angry. And I said, why are you angry? And he said, we did this whole thing and we made a mistake and we had to start over. I was like, why didn't you put, you know, control Z undo? So this is years and years and years ago. Anyways, so I had an Excel sheet and I would keep inventory of everything that was going through the store. And he told me, listen, your first salary is going to be $300 for the month. You can spend it. Or you can buy anything and sell it in the store and I'll give you all the profit. So immediately my mind started to work. And I bought, um, I, I saw what the high selling items were and I bought those basketballs, soccer balls, stuff like that. So I bought them from the guy who sells, you know, like this was my money into them. And then I would, uh, I would sell them. <laughs> I'd position them so that they would sell. <laughs> and I'd sell them and I'd get the profit and I'd buy more and I'd sell them by the end of that summer, I had made about $1,800. And I had sold a lot of stuff too. I, I was People found me amusing. There's this 12-year-old kid. He's working at the store. Uh, he's got an incredible personality. My father had really put that through me and my mom and my grandparents. I was always surrounded by adults a lot of my life with big personalities. And, um, and people were like, there's this 12-year-old kid. He's a lot of fun. He's hilarious. Let's go check him out. So people started coming to the store and we started shifting product. Summer ended, I had about $1,800. And that was incredible for me. The next summer, my father told the girl he was going to pay her her salary, but to stay home. And I was going to run the store by myself when I was 13. And I did. And that summer, we sold the most that we had ever sold in that store. Uh, I had put up signs inside the store. I had done marketing, branding, like not branding, like I'm trying to sell, let's say Jordan shirts or whatever. So I'd put like, I'd print out on a printer that we had bought, you know, like funny logos, like the Michael Jordan logo, you know, the jump man. I put that on a, I print that on a printer that we had and then hang it over like the, the circular hanger where we had his jerseys or, um, you know, stuff like that. Like, uh, there'd be cool brands. I changed where they were placed in the store. I'd figure I, I would notice things like people who are interested in tennis. Like if somebody came in and said they wanted tennis balls, I would put the tennis balls towards the back and make sure that the rackets were on the way. You know, there there was there were things that I, w I was doing that I was noticing at 13 uh, to try and up the sales so I could even make more money from the stuff that I sold. And at the time, I was really into music. So I'd go and buy CDs with the money and stuff like that and spend it to go to like my friends or whatever when I could. So th those were incredible summers, man, despite the fact like they were set up at first. I thought it was going to be the worst, but I had a, a, an incredible time. 
that was when I was 13. When I was um, 14, my father was like, my father is a civil mechanical engineer and he has these huge construction sites with hundreds of, um, you know, uh, not employees, but basically workers, people who work the, the like laborers, you know what I'm saying? And my father, you know, he's the guy running the whole thing. Didn't matter. I would work with the laborers. So when I was 14, I had blisters on my hand and I'd be bleeding and I'd faint and I'd get exhausted. And he'd always be like, um, you know, you're 14. Look at these men. They're like three times your age and they're still there and they're able to stay the whole day. Like, I, and, and it, for me, I was like, why am I so weak? You know, even though obviously they're going to be stronger, but it, it wouldn't factor that way. It would make me want to be better. And I remember one day he had a jackhammer and he's like, get on the jackhammer and see if you can hold it. The guy who would who would who would control the jackhammer. I'm sure it's a jackhammer, right? The thing that you hold and goes and like breaks the asphalt by hand. He was jacked, for lack of a better term. He was ripped. This guy was huge. He was insane. Like when he do this thing, his muscles, I was like, oh, my God. What does this guy do? My and the, he told me. I asked him, I'm like, how are you have so many muscles? He's like, it's from the jackhammer. It's that hard to control. Like, it's an incredible exercise. So my dad told me, um, give it a shot. And everybody was looking because they thought it was going to spin out of control. I was able to hold it for a good like three or four seconds. And and but for like a week, I couldn't move my arms. It was so taxing. It took everything I had. I just wanted to impress everyone so much. You know, these are childhood memories. These are incredible. So that summer, I worked on the job site with my dad. When I was 15, my dad was like, okay, you got a, um, on 14 and 15, I worked on the job site at 16, uh, or may have been, yeah, 16. He has a sister who lives in Paris and she's a real estate agent. She has a real estate agency called Immo Conseil Morangis. Immo Conseil Morangis. And, uh, uh, he said, would you like to go to Paris and learn French and work as a real estate agent? Or basically help your aunt. And I said, yeah, bien sûr. <laughs> oui, oui. <laughs> Sacré bleu. Uh, and I used to joke about this in my first comedy special, but I went there and instead of me learning French, I taught my cousins how to speak English. And that's a true story. They were so, they didn't care about teaching me French. They wanted to learn how to speak English better. So I went that summer and I, I, I learned French a bit, enough to make enough comedy jokes. I saw Mission Impossible uh, no, not Mission Impossible. What was the movie? Planet of the Apes. One of my very early funny jokes came from that experience. In my first special, This Is Why I'm Hot, people know it from there. Uh, in Planet of the Apes, I, I would say we went and saw Planet of the Apes. And um, so in French, they have the same word for monkey and ape. They don't have a different word for monkey and a different word for ape. They're both singe. And I was like, um, it, so I'm watching Planet of the Apes. And at one point in the movie, they're like, we are not singe. We are singe. And everybody was like, oh, c'est le singe, mais c'est le singe, le singe. Oui, baguette, baguette, baguette. That was, that was my joke. So it gave me material. It also gave me an unforgettable experience. My parents had given me about, if I'm not mistaken, a thousand francs, French francs. I can't remember now. It's euros there. And um, I had this money. I was like, oh, my God, a thousand the possibilities I can do anything. You know, when you're young and you get like 20 bucks and you're like, how could I possibly spend all of this money? What to do? And then you fall asleep because it's overwhelming. So at the time, uh, unless you're one of the rich kids watching, you know, then you're probably like, <laughs> what? Um, I had this thousand thing and, and, and my cousins, Frédéric and Christophe, 
Fredo and Christophe. Uh, Frédéric is a DJ in Paris, by the way. He's a big DJ. His name is DJ Karam. So, you know, check him out. Check him out if you're ever there. <laughs> he throws huge parties. The guy's like a legend. Got a lot of entertainers in my family. They took me to this place while I was there um, where, you know, like a marketplace. They wanted, they they get records and stuff like that. Frédéric would get records and use them. He, he would like mix vinyls, like, uh, you know, like old school scratching. He would scratch discs and he would put out mixtapes and it was a huge thing. Him and his friends had this wicked, wicked um, movement. And uh, he was friends with, there was a band called Centres, 113. And they had a song called Tonton du Bled. Um, and at, um, and hey, it was, tonton. it's this banging. You know what? I'm going to put a bit of it right now so you can hear the beat. Dans ce cas-là, je ramène tous mes amis. Alors, dans une semaine, je rentre à Vitry. J'irai finir mes jours là-bas. So, this was a huge, huge hit song in, in Paris at the time. And there was this part where he goes, Toute la semaine, je mangeais la chorba. Which means all week I eat chorba. Tonton du bled means like my, my uncle from the bled. Bled meaning my countries in Arabic. Um, really dope song. Anyways, we go to this place, and while we're walking in this marketplace, which is like an old souk, it's an old flea market type kind of thing, we're walking through, there's a, there's a guy doing tricks, like he has a table out, and he's like, okay, here are three cards, and he starts f- flipping them around, and he goes, "If this is the card, puts it in, and then he's like, okay, see where it is, see where it is, choose the card, if you can choose the card, I'm going to flip it over, if that's your card, you win, double your money, whatever you put down. I had maybe 600 or 700 of the thousand on me. I was carrying everything with me as an idiot kid. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. I could double my money? Like, I could make more than I originally came with. And I got, like, so much already at home. But how am I going to know which card? So this guy standing next to the dude who's doing it looks at me. He goes, like that. While this other guy is distracted, he grabs one of the cards without the guy seeing it. And he bends it. And he's like, I bent it. So now we'll know which one it is. And um, because the guy was like, choose a card. I chose a card. He put it on the table. Um, Now I'm remembering. So now I remember what happened. Okay, no, no, no. This is exactly what happened. We get there. I see this guy. He bends the card. The guy gets distracted. Um, he, He tells the guy, choose the card. The guy chooses his card. Something distracts the dude dealing the cards. He turns around. That guy grabs it, bends it, puts it back. The other dude didn't see. He flips the cards. The guy chooses his card. He's like, oh, and he he gives him the money. He goes, okay, okay, one more time. He does it again. Boom. The guy finds a way. It's the same bent card. He sees the other card. Like, he's got a he's got a thing going on. So then the guy goes, go for it, man. Like, he looks at me, and he's like, when this guy is talking to somebody, he's like, put your money down. I got you. Don't worry. So like an idiot, I put my money down. I put like two or 300. I put a lot of coin down. I put it down. And the guy bends the card, same thing, and it's not the card. It was all a sham. It was a scam. They were all together. And I was, I was like, oh, my God. You have to understand, right now, 
if you're watching this and you're an adult, you might think to yourself, 200, 300 French francs, whatever it was at the time, might not be a lot of money. But for me, that was like a million dollars, man. We, I didn't have money growing up. And it was my parents' money, man. Like they worked so hard for that. And I just, I just lost it. So earlier in the day, I remember that taught me so much about trusting people. And I matured in that moment years. I grew up very quickly in that moment. But later on, just so that you don't think it has a sad ending, earlier in the day, I had found this guy who had Rage Against the Machine CDs. And one of the Rage Against the Machine, he had these bootleg CDs. Like they had, somebody had illegally recorded them in concerts and stuff, and I bought everything they had. And we hit it off. He was a huge Rage Against the Machine fan. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak French. He spoke very rudimentary English. I spoke absolutely no French. But we hit it off over this music. So later on, I go to this guy. And I try to return the Rage Against the Machine CD to get my money back. And he asks me, why did you want your money back? And I see the guys that took the money from me. And I was like, and I pointed at them. And I go, and he looks at me and he's like, no, 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 no. Like, you didn't do that. And I go, yeah. So I got no more money. And he goes, attends, wait. He goes to the guys, because they all work there. And he talks to them and they give him like a hundred out of the 300 back. So I got some money back. So thank you, Rage Against the Machine. Thank you, Zach DeLaRosha. Where are you, Zach DeLaRosha? Please come back. Um, yes. But um, so anyways, I worked in real estate with my aunt at the time. We had a great time. I learned a lot about marketing and selling. Things. I come back in the next year. It's time to go to university. My father wants to leave his job. He's been an employee in Lebanon ever since he came back. He's tired. He's disgusted with it. They don't pay on time. He didn't get his salary for two years. He did the biggest projects in Lebanon, all the water pump stations. Um, for those of you who know Lebanon in Dubai, Zaytriye, all of these different places, my father built them. He had no recognition for it. He had no money. His boss wouldn't pay him. You know how it is in Lebanon. Um, for those who have been to Lebanon, you work, you don't get your salary. They say next month, three months passes. They give you one month, another two months. He was sick and tired. He had gotten herniated discs from the work. He had two discs in his back. He was exhausted. He was underappreciated. He was demotivated. And in my family, we have insurance. Insurance broking is actually pretty big in my family. Uh, from my mom's side, the first ever Lloyd's accredited broker ship run by an Arab in London was United Insurance Brokers, which is still there today. And my uncles and everybody works in that company. It was a huge company. And so we had been in insurance. My father had worked in insurance many, many years ago. His uncle from his side had worked in insurance. He had two uncles who had worked in insurance, one in life insurance, one in general insurance. So it was part of our family. So my dad wanted to open an insurance brokerage company. So he gave me a partnership in the company. I took 20%, I believe. 20% was in my name. 20% um, was in my mother's name and 60% was in my father's name. And my father put 20% in my mom's name and he said, always when you do a company, put your family in it, even if they're not gonna work with you, so that if one day you marry somebody and they say, why are you giving your mom money? You can say it's a percentage of the company. That is the kind of guy my dad is. He would always think 50,000 steps ahead. He'd be like, if I give you percentage in this company that way, when it grows in the future, if you marry somebody, it helps you avoid conflict. I'm like, why would I marry a girl that would tell me, why are you giving your mom money? And he said, I'll never forget this. He told me that um, you'd be surprised what love can make you do. 
So good advice right there. Thankfully, I came out my father's and my mother's son, and uh, I'm with the right woman. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's just to give you a bit of a hint of his personality. And we opened this brokerage company when I was 17, and I was a freshman at the American University of Beirut. And I, I would study really hard, and I learned, and we started doing reinsurance. So we would insure big risks. So it wasn't like medical or whatever. We do that stuff. But we were insuring aircraft. We insured several fleets of aircraft. At the time, uh, following 9-11 as well, um, there was a huge burst in the aviation industry. A lot of companies went bust. So there were cheap planes everywhere. And you just had people opening up flying company, like companies with jets and stuff everywhere. Private jets, public commercial charters. So we had a, a boom there. Uh, we were insuring financial risks. We were insuring uh, oil refineries. Our business was all over the world. It grew rapidly. By the time I graduated, uh, I wasn't making a single dollar. My dad wouldn't pay me. He was paying my tuition. He was paying my university fees. He was paying for my life. So I would work uh, while studying. So I would have my suit behind the door. I'd go do my classes. AUB was right next to our office. We had an office in a building called the Piccadilly Building across the street from Barbar. Uh, Barbar, uh, for a lot of people who are Lebanese, you know exactly what Barbar is. For those of you who don't know what Barbar is, think Jesus, but as food. Like the greatest concept, as my friend Rabia used to say, Barbar isn't a restaurant, it's a state of mind. <laughs> and that place was incredible. They had every type of food. It was a self-sustaining ecosystem. You could have all the foods there. There were all types of proteins and carbs. And it was a bunch of, there was ne'ish barbar and chicken barbar. And there was, you know, the sandwich barbar and the juice barbar. And they were all next to each other. I used to joke, all he needed was internet connection and electricity barbar. And, and that's it, you're done. So I'd work there, and by the time I graduated, we were bringing in, for the first time, some okay money. Like, it had built into a very respectable company. We had a portfolio, and I, I started working full-time in the company and doing stand-up comedy on this side. At the same time, I was incredibly unhappy. I uh, was depressed. I, uh, in university, I wasn't happy. I wasn't a happy child. I was also, I was, I was always funny and I used to make people laugh a lot and people loved being around me and I used to try to make people laugh and I used to be loud and I used to be all of that so that I, cause I didn't want to be with myself. I didn't want to hear myself. I didn't want to experience myself. I needed a distraction because internally I was in a horrible state for many, many years. I had a lot of personal issues because I always felt like I needed to do something with my life and I wasn't doing it. I always felt that I was being limited. My potential was always being stifled. I wanted to be in music. I was an incredible guitar player and a vocalist and I was in a heavy metal band, but I couldn't practice that because I had to work and we had to do this. And and my father was against it. And he's like, it's a waste of your time. And it was constant arguing and negativity. and. You know, I'd, I'd go to university and I'd have to take these courses that I didn't want to take. And it sounds all very trivial now, but at the time, I just, I was suffering from a lot of depression. When there was no money and, uh, you know, you, you look around, everybody has everything easy and you're just constantly struggling. And I lived a across the country. I lived in a place called Adma, which was like without traffic, 
30 minutes away from the American University of Beirut with traffic, two and a half hours. I'd be taking public transportation and the public transportation in Lebanon was terrible. And every day there'd be a fight on the bus and I got hit with a wrench. And it was it was like, it's just nothing was the way I wanted it. This wasn't the life I envisioned when I was a kid playing with toys. This wasn't what it meant to be grown up. You were supposed to be happy. You know, I couldn't talk to women. I never had love. I was um, I was lonely. And um, so I started going and I was fat, really, really fat. And I would gain, I gained so much weight and I, I used to eat a lot because I wasn't happy. And then I saw an anime, I discovered anime, a Japanese anime in my sophomore year or junior year, you know, just before I finished university by a year or two, a friend of mine called John. John Nasser, I call him Sensei, shout out to him. He introduced me to anime. So I had already seen anime, but very little. And I and he had an anime t-shirt, I think, and I told him, and we just started talking. And I told him, I love anime, but I have no access to it. And he's like, I got you. And this is, I'm telling you, man, this is like when it was hard to come by. Now you can just download it. And he handed me a DVD collection for several animes, but one of them was Berserk. And um, do I have it here? No. I don't okay and um i watched berserk and you have to watch berserk it's 21 episodes the genius of this story it affected me on such a nuclear level it motivated me to make a change in my life so much that i took a nutrition course i ordered books i started studying and for the last year and a half of university I became a beast. I was working out. I was training. I was taking care of my diet. I lost about 57 kilos. That's more than 100 pounds. That's well over 100 pounds. I got to calculate it. If it's 2.2, 50 times 2.2, so you're talking about 120 pounds. Let me let me take a look here. Maybe less. 57 kilograms to pounds. Um, 125 pounds, 126 pounds. And I was in great shape. And when I graduated from university, I became addicted to the gym, but I was very depressed. I was also very depressed because I had a condition that I won't go into details here because it's um, it's something I did get over and I had to see a doctor about, but it affected me very, very much. And uh, I would like to get into it and I will one day. Um, because I have zero shame about it whatsoever. But it was something that was very debilitating for me, and I, I, out of embarrassment and shame, I didn't share it with anyone. And uh, until one day I, I did, and the solution was so stupid when I went and saw a doctor. But it was, it was probably the biggest, a big reason why I was also, I thought of myself, I hated myself. I hated my entire being. I hated my body. I hated the love handles. I hated the fat. I hated this condition that I had. I hated all of these things. I hated that I would get sick. I I never knew things that people know. This was very weird about me. I didn't know, for instance, that you needed to sleep. I thought that sleep was a thing that we did, that collectively as a society, we just needed a break. So we decided to sleep. But I figured that if it was, it was just a willpower thing, so I wouldn't sleep. I'd stay awake. And I would get angry with myself why I was getting tired the next day. 
and like falling asleep. I've fallen asleep while driving many times, like completely asleep. And it's a miracle. I've never had a car accident. Um, I would constantly get sick because I wasn't sleeping, because I was always down and I was always stressed out and I would hate myself for getting sick and I would get angry and I had so much fury and rage. I had so much hatred in my heart and I would go and take it out in the gym. After I graduated, I'd go to the gym and I would be, I'd get to the gym, I'd be exhausted. I would have slept maybe in the past week a total of 10 hours. Like it was insane, no sleep, nothing. But then I would look at myself in the mirror and I'd be so disgusted and angry that I would have this internal fuel and I would go and I would train. It got to the point where I was training four to five hours a day. And on Saturdays, I was doing martial arts as well during this time. On Saturdays, I would take my class and train all day. I'd train about 11 hours. And then on Sunday, I wouldn't even take the day off. I'd go out and I'd run around. And and in my mind, every time I'd go to the gym, I would envision these incredibly dark visions of somebody I love being attacked and 50 guys uh, going after somebody I needed to protect. And I would keep running on the treadmill with that image because I'm weak. Sure, I could take out two, three, ten guys. At that point, I was very highly trained and incredibly, incredibly strong. But could I take out 50? No, I'm weak. I'm disgusting. I hate myself. That was literally my my entire like frame of mind the entire time. Let me just fix this frame a bit. Um, so I'd go harder. I'd be pushing weight and then um, like I'd be doing a bench press and I couldn't push a weight that somebody else was able to push. So as a punishment... I would, I would like hang from a bar from an hour. Like it was insane stuff. I was, I, I don't know what the hell was wrong with me now that I think, but I, I got to a point where I was jumping rope for like 50 minutes straight and then running for an hour and 40 minutes and then doing a gym workout and, and it wouldn't even phase me. And uh, it was all because I needed, to, I needed to be great because I knew there was something great coming and I needed to be prepared. And I knew that there was going to be a lot trying to stop me. And I knew that there was going to be uh, a greater than, than God force that was going to take me down. And I had to be ready for that. And I had to be prepared and everything. There wasn't time to sleep. There wasn't time to feel sorry for myself. I had to be the greatest. That's how I felt, right? Like the whole time, the whole time. I remember once I parked my car and fell asleep in my car until the next day. That's how sleep deprived I was. Tying my shoes once and I fell asleep and fell over. Anyways, a war happens in Lebanon in 2006. And before that, um, our prime minister was assassinated. And I was very close to that explosion. And after that, a, a kind of like a civil, like a war broke out, not a civil war, sorry, a war broke out in Lebanon 2006. Israel started bombing Lebanon for a month. And um, the day that they're bombing, you may have heard my joke, the PTSD, yeah, the PTSD joke. You can see it here on YouTube um, where I say that I had a hernia surgery and I bring it up. Go and Google it and check it out. It's a hilarious story. Often out of tragedy comes great hilarity. And um, the day that the war started, the day before, we were leaving where we were staying to go to another house that was, we thought, in a more secure area. It was in a Christian neighborhood. And we knew that the Israelis would want to be bombing the Shiite Muslims mainly, or Hezbollah, in their areas. 
And uh, we figured that it would be safer in those areas because they'd never bomb there. They would never do that because because if they did, then they would lose their image in the international eye. So we moved there and I was picking up a huge TV up the stairs and I'm walking up the stairs and I had this bulge in my groin area and it was about to burst from my pants by the time I got up to the house. It was on the second floor and I had had this bulge. It would pop out and then it would disappear and it would pop out and it would disappear and I thought it was a pulled muscle. I had no idea it was a hernia. I used to train on it on the hernia I would get the pain from it or the bulge and I'd get angry that I was pulling a muscle there so I'd do cardio instead of weights until it would pop back in and then I'd start doing weights and then it popped back out so that night I googled it and I was like oh my god I have a hernia I didn't even know what a hernia was I thought a hernia was something in the stomach it is the stomach the groin area is where your lower abdomen is we went to a doctor the war was about to break out there were warning shots going everywhere it was going it was getting really bad and in Lebanon, you develop a talent for knowing when war is coming. We went to a hospital. I saw the doctor and I told him I have hernia. And he goes, really? How do you know you have hernia? I said, because I Googled it. He said, oh, so you're a doctor now. He was being all cocky. I was like, no, listen, I have a hernia. There's a huge bulge. He's like, if you had a hernia that was that big and that you could identify that easily, you wouldn't be able to walk. He lays me down and he's like, holy shit, this is one of the worst hernias I've seen in my life. My entire right lower abdomen had ripped and my entire, that bulge was my, my intestine was hanging out of my body. And he said that it needs emergency surgery. We scheduled it the next morning. And he said, if you don't get the emergency surgery, you could die. Uh, something can happen where it chokes the intestine and you get some kind of toxin thing and you end up dying. And uh, I was like, holy shit. All right, let's do it. So we scheduled it for the next morning it was an emergency surgery i have an incision in that area that's about like this big no no joke like it was completely ripped open and the surgery is they basically put a mesh on the lower intestine and sew it together and then it it grows over the mesh in a pattern you actually have a stronger uh lower abdomen than you did before and apparently all men have hernias because when we're in our mother's wombs our testicles drop by punching through the lower abdomen and it closes uh, up but it's always susceptible to tearing again so that's some medical information and um and the reason that i was able to walk by the way and the reason was because i was so well trained i had been doing gym and martial arts and everything my body was insane i was shredded and ripped beyond belief but not like bulk it was pure strength and like i was you know doing bruce lee's training regimen and i was like so basically the rest of my body took over and the imbalance i didn't feel it so um i was even doing abs on anyways enough about the training we go and we do the surgery and the israelis bomb next to the hospital which is in a christian area the windows do explode and it was insane um, we do go into the surgery despite that. That's where my dad made the joke that you hear in the PTSD comedy set. Just type Nimmer PTSD and you'll see it if you haven't already. And um, I do the surgery. The next day I leave the hospital and we go home. I can't walk. I can't laugh. I can't cough. If I walk, it's extremely excruciating. It's like a, it's still fresh. You know, there's stitches and it's huge wound. And we get to the house and I have, I'm, I'm bedridden. And that was the most humbling experience of my life because I was in my bed 
everything I had spent the past few years training for to be ready to protect my loved ones, that big cataclysmic event had just arrived. And on the, the morning of, I failed. And I felt like a failure. I failed, I felt like I failed everyone. I couldn't do anything. And the bombing got worse. And then they bombed right next to our house. They bombed right above our house. They bombed the highway. Underneath it, they killed countless civilians. And um, indiscriminate, disgusting bombing campaign. And uh, I remember my sister was on the balcony once when they bombed the bridge in Adma, for those of you who know, down. And from the blast, she jumped backwards and slammed into the window and a few windows popped. And I jumped out of bed and ran because it felt like it landed on our building. And um, my sister was screaming and my mom was screaming and I didn't hear my dad. And I thought my dad had died. But um, what had actually happened was my father was in survival mode. So he wasn't panicking. He was going to see what was happening. It wasn't even close to our house. It was close, but it wasn't like at our house. It was just, it, it was so powerful that it felt like it was in our house. But I had jumped out of bed from the adrenaline. And I ran out, made sure everyone's okay. Everyone was fine. And, you know, we, we started laughing. All of us started laughing after that. Uh, <laughs> it's traumatizing for my sister, especially because she was looking at the bridge. She was standing on the balcony, just enjoying the view. And it blew up in her face. And she flew back. Unreal. And um, and then my father looked at me and he goes, how are you out of bed? And I remember, and he goes, your face is green. And on the adrenaline, I hadn't even realized, but the pain. And it was bleeding and I made my way back to bed. So I felt like a complete failure. Because nothing happened. But I remember thinking to myself, man, if something had happened, then what would I be able to do? There's nothing that I would be able to do to help these people, my family. So I learned a lesson. A, to stop being stupid. And B, for that month that I was in bed, it took me six months until I could push weight again. And I lost a lot of my gains and everything. I had to control my rage, my nonstop, ever-flowing fury that was just in here and i was forced to sit with myself for hours on end and analyze and realize the source of a lot of my frustration was i wasn't happy because i wanted a different life for myself i wanted to do stand-up comedy i wanted adventure i deserved more i was i didn't want to settle for what everybody said, you're in Lebanon and you'll never be able to do great things because this country is never going to let you because it's all war and the people are so divided and you just do whatever you can to survive. And I was like, no, I deserve more than that. I want more than that. And I do not want to settle. My fury was because I was settling. And in 2006, the war ended and months later, the country was so divided. You couldn't, in the same building, you'd have you know, people of the same faith fighting because one of them was with his political party and the other, you couldn't escape it. All the TV shows, all the music, all of the, um, all the nightclubs, everywhere you'd go, it was political. The universities, the campuses, everything was divided and divisive. Think America today. 
<laughs> this is why I keep saying America is more Arab than it's ever been. Everything, everywhere you went, it was politics and division and politics and religion and division. And I said to myself, I'm like, God damn it, I know what to do. If I can set up a comedy movement, if I can build on the comedy, the stand-up comedy industry that I've already got going. We had, at that point, it was a thing. It was a concept. It was out there. If I can build on it and we can take it further, I could make a safe space, for lack of a better term, a place where you could go on a Friday night. I figured in 10, 15 years, if I start now, in 10, 15 years, you could go on a Friday night, watch a comedy show, and it's just funny about everything that we have in common instead of constantly reminding us about everything that divides us, there's this thing that could put us all together in a room. We laugh together and it would set the tone for the weekend. We set the tone for the weekend. We could change the tone for the week and maybe we could turn this ship around. That was my dream. So I decided to start doing stand-up comedy. And I decided I was going to do stand-up comedy with no politics, no religion, one love, which became my creed and a stamp and a logo that we had on all my posters. And that's where I'm going to end the show today. And the next show, I'm going to talk about how I put on the first show where I dared to let people pay to see my show, where I sold tickets, and how it defined everything and changed everything. It was the beginning of my relationship with Mix FM, and how we went on from there to do shows all over the country how I was integral to producing big shows like The Axis of Evil that came to the Middle East, and I was working with Showtime Arabia at the time when Showtime America was part of the Showtime Arabia. And um, and no politics, no religion, one love. The charity that we set up um, to bring people together, how we overcame religious and political divides, how we started a movement. And the next episode will really dive, probably, I hope we'll get to the nucleus of what makes stand-up comedy in the Middle East so incredible, so revolutionary, and so unlike anything else in the world. Reminiscent a lot of American stand-up comedy when it first started with Lenny Bruce and how it was so revolutionary. But in a very different way. Instead of calling truth to power, it brought power through the truth that we were all the same. Thank you guys for watching this episode. I can't wait to see you in the next one. Make sure that you subscribe on YouTube or on iTunes. And this podcast will be out on Spotify very soon. So wherever you are, because I'm going to drop the next episode sooner rather than later, because I owe you. So I'm going to be, you know, trying to up the schedule a bit. And I really love doing this. And thank you all for watching and for hanging out with me for an hour. Uh, head to nimmercomedy.com to get tickets. If you're going to be in any of the upcoming shows that I got, whether it's uh, Tempe, Arizona, April 12 and 13, or so if you're in Phoenix or Arizona, swing on by, or at the Irvine Improv in California in Irvine on April 24, or if it's going to be, I'm just making sure I'm not missing any dates, so I'm checking my phone, or May 4 in Toronto. So uh, Toronto is going to be Love Isn't the Answer, Tempe, Arizona, and Irvine, The Future Is Now, my brand new show. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> oh, goodness. So nimmercomedy.com and follow me on my social networks and I will see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, if you didn't know, that's Raphael right there behind me. Just noticed I forgot this. I forgot this entire thing. Usually I take that out. That's a that's the equipment bag that I have that I put the lighting and the microphone and all the stuff and the cameras in me in in me. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> I put them in that and I travel, they travel with me so that I can do this podcast and film anything else that I need to do on the road. And I had this honest. So if you were looking at that, wondering what it was the whole time, it's a Ninja Turtles piggy bank. Raphael, my favorite Ninja Turtle. Second is Michelangelo. I love them all. I can't. Hard to choose. By the way, if you haven't seen the second Ninja Turtle movie, the Michael Bay produced one, the first one was complete trash. The second one is everything the child in me ever wanted in a Ninja Turtle movie. I highly recommend that you go watch it now. Go and watch it. It's incredible. Uh, next week, hopefully, I'll be able to announce links where you can see all of my comedy specials. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm going to miss you guys. See you very soon. Uh, won't be a week. So stay tuned. Bye-bye. Thanks for everything. And thanks for sharing the podcast with everybody. The views are insane. The comments are amazing. And uh, this is if for the people watching on YouTube, we're probably right now just want to give you a shout out to the people who are with me in the premiere. If you're on YouTube, the advantage that you get is that whenever I drop an episode, I watch it with everybody and I hang out and we chat while we're watching together. It's a feature only exclusive to YouTube. So if you're here right now and you're on YouTube, um, during the first time this premieres. Obviously, if you're watching this in the future, this makes no sense. But if you're here right now, I just want to give you a special shout out and tell you guys that you are uh, that you mean the world to me. And I, I look forward to watching the episode more than I do even doing the episode. Goodbye, everybody. Love you.